seated this morning. We'll take your Bibles once again and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We find ourselves back in Philippians this morning. It is our normal habit here at Prince to walk through books of the Bible. I did take a break last week for Easter, which was not what I would normally do. It would normally uh, be my habit to not stop for special occasions like that, but just to continue to go through. I just really didn't want to preach on church unity on Easter. I uh, thought maybe we'd save that for this week, and so we do find ourselves back in Philippians 2 this morning, but looking forward uh, to this incredible text of Scripture, probably the most well-known text in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, but this morning we'll be looking at just verses 1 through 4, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. When it comes to our growth in Christ, our spiritual life, growing in Christ-likeness, coming to know him more and to be more like him, the reason in which God called us in the first place that we might know him and that we might look like him, one of the most important aspects of our growth in our relationship with Christ, yet one that is so often overlooked, one that is so often undermined by the enemy, is our relationship with one another. Right next to our consistent daily time in the Word of God, which uh, there is no growth without consistent time in the Word of God. Right next to our time in prayer, right next to our service and our giving and all of these spiritual disciplines, is our relationship with one another. And it's not just that we need help from one another and encouragement from one another and friendship. It's actually deeper and a little bit more complicated than that. You see, one of the primary ways that God grows us is through the difficulty of our relationship with one another. It is through our commitment to one another that grows us in a way that nothing else will grow us. God uses our relationship to one another to cultivate certain virtues in us, Christ-like virtues, that could never be cultivated in isolation. It's, it's much like marriage. I mean, marriage is a wonderful thing which God has created, but you learn very quickly that marriage can be difficult. And marriage requires from us, if it's going to work, godliness. It was Gary Thomas who said many years ago in a book called Sacred Marriage, what if God created marriage not just to make you happy, but to make you holy? Now that's a great thought. What it means is that marriage doesn't exist simply to make you happy. Marriage is one of the primary ways in which God is going to drive you humbly to the cross and help you to see your need for the grace of God and force you, if you're willing to walk with the Lord, to be the person that God has called you to be. This, this is the, the reason we have relationships. It is in relationships that we learn how to serve and we learn how to love it is in relationships we learn how to sacrifice. It is in relationships in which we learn how to be empathetic with one another. And this is exactly why God's plan for every believer is to be actively engaged in the life of a local church. 
not just committed to the entity, not just attending church, but involved in the lives of other believers because there is a part of our spiritual growth that will only take place in our commitment to one another in the good times and in the bad times, in the difficult times, when we're easy to love and when we are difficult to love. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that culture has not equipped us very well for this. Many of you, I may even say the majority of you, might have grown up in a broken home in which what you saw played out is this. We're going to love each other when it's easy to love each other, but when it gets difficult to love each other, we're going to say we just don't love each other anymore. This has affected so many different areas of our life in which the culture has told us that when things get difficult and it doesn't seem to work out, well, just move on. And frankly, we're still in a lot of ways teaching people this. I mean, I, I have five children, so I'm thinking about these things right now, and I, I'm thinking about even our modern dating philosophy in which what we're saying is this to an 8th grader or a ninth grader, God forbid even younger, what we're saying is this. Listen, the way in which you figure this out is you give your heart to someone or you give yourself emotionally and most likely even physically and then if it doesn't work out, you just break that one off and try another one. Modern dating is not the training ground for marriage. Modern dating is the training ground for divorce. And we're just letting our kids experiment with hearts and join in these relationships. And the truth is, it's just a part of the way we think about commitment to relationships. This is why I'm thankful that Joshua Harris a few years ago wrote a book called Stop Dating the Church. That's a great line, isn't it? That there are reasons to leave a church. If the church fails to preach sound doctrine, if the uh, pastors are not walking with the Lord, if there is not an ability for you to serve, there are reasons to leave the church. Yet at the same time, what often happens is a church gets complicated and messy and difficult, and we find another one. But I want you to think for a minute about the Philippians. Their context is so different from ours, it's hard to think about. But imagine Paul came into town, he led a few people to Christ, and they've now gathered together in a church, and it's the most diverse group of people you can imagine. You have a wealthy Asian woman and her family. You have a poor Greek slave girl who is just freed from a demonic spirit. And then you have a blue-collar Roman soldier and his family, and all of them are stuck in the church. And the problem is this. If they don't like each other, they can't go to Second Baptist Church. I'm assuming where they were going was First Baptist Church. I'm sorry, that, that may not be the case, but they, they can't go to Philippi Bible Church or just the church at Philippi. They, this is the church. They have one church and one group of people they're stuck with, and the glorious thing about that is that they've got to figure it out. And you see, it's not just about them. Think about this. It's about the reputation of Christ in Philippi. There's one group of believers gathered in one church, and if they're not getting along, what does that say about Christ? So yeah, it's, it's, it's better to be a part of a unified church. Unity matters because it just makes life better, doesn't it? But unity matters because there's a lost world wondering if we can figure this out relationally. Is our God big enough? Is he strong enough? 
to get us to love each other even when we're difficult to love. And so Paul, who started this church and loves this church, is hearing years later that the church is not getting along. And from the beginning of this book to the end, Paul is pleading with them to be unified. Not just for their sake, but for the gospel's sake and for Christ's sake. They have to figure this out for their own sanctification and so that they might increase the reputation of Jesus Christ in the community by saying that that we're loving each other even when it's difficult and even when we have nothing else in common, we're going to love each other. And so that's the whole point of the end of chapter 1, which I've told you I believe is the key verse of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, I want your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He goes on to talk about the external opposition that they're suffering, that there's a lot of physical pressure on them to give up the faith. And Paul is just pleading with them, please get along. Learn to figure this out. And then when he transitions to chapter 2, He begins to tell us a little bit how to figure this out, why it's important, and exactly how unity works. And I think what you have in verses 1 through 4 is a pathway to unity. Paul wants us to see and feel in our heart the weight of this. This this matters. If you want to walk with Jesus Christ, figuring out how to be together and unified matters. It's complicated, it's difficult, but it matters. If we care about the gospel and the reputation of Christ, this matters. So I'm appealing to you based upon those things, that you want to walk with Jesus, you want to grow, you want to see the reputation of Christ to be good in our community, you want the gospel to flourish, so on that basis, Unity of the church is essential. So look at what Paul says, starting in verse 2. I mean, in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so, based upon this call to be unified, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. We're going to stop right there this morning because... It is in this place where he lays the foundation for verses 5 through 11 by helping us to see the pathway to unity. And what I think we're going to discover in verses 1 through 4 is this. Selfless humility is always the pathway to unity. If you're taking notes, that's one of those things that you would write down. Selfless humility is always the pathway to unity. That's true in a church. That's true in a marriage. That's true in a friendship. This is a principle that goes over every relationship. But Paul is saying here to the church, listen, the pathway for you to be unified, because he tells us in chapter 4 they're not getting along very well, the pathway to restoring unity is simply this, selfless humility. Humility. 
and he builds his case. He builds his case starting in verse 1 and then going to verse 2 and verse 3 and 4. He is building this case for the reason that selfless humility is the pathway to unity. Now, I want you to follow Paul's logical argument here starting in verse 1. And there's three different parts of this argument I want you to see. The first one is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is the point of verse 1. We share the same gospel blessings. Write that down. We share the same gospel blessings. When I say we, I'm referring to the church of Jesus Christ. Those who by faith have trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the payment for their sins. They are submissive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We as believers. So I'm not just including the church as it's visible, but the church as God sees it, those who are believers. And what Paul is saying is this, listen, we share something incredible. Like there, there is a lot of things we don't share. He's speaking to a diverse church. We don't share a lot of cultural similarities. We, we don't share a lot of background. We don't share economic similarities. But let me tell you what we do share. We share the exact same gospel blessings. Now, the word if is used there in verse 1, but it would probably be better translated since. I mean, Paul is making this argument saying this, listen, if, if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, then this needs to be true. But he's really saying these things are true. He's building an argument. So you could say, well, well since, and then he gives these five different things. There is encouragement in Christ, you see that? Comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. And what he's about to do, he's about to plead with them to be unified based upon this one truth. There's a lot of things we don't have in common, but we share these things. What are these things? Well, encouragement in Christ. Now, I would say the most important words there are the last two, in Christ. Paul is referring to our union with Jesus Christ. The most frequent way in which Paul refers to a believer in all of the New Testament is in Christ. That when we come to Jesus Christ by faith and we are saved by his death and his resurrection, what happens is then we are united with Jesus Christ. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. He is really the only son of God, but we get adopted into the family and we become children of God. All the inheritance that belongs to Jesus, we get in on. All the blessings that belongs to Jesus, we get in on. So all of the way in which God the Father sees his son, Jesus Christ, is the way he now sees us. Why? Because we are united with Jesus Christ in salvation. Now Paul's saying this. We, as different as we are, share this unity. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, whether we like it or not, we're related in Christ. And he says there is encouragement in Christ. I mean, what greater source of encouragement do we get? The encouragement of knowing that you have been declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ. Is that not encouraging? Is it not encouraging that when God the Father looks at you, he no longer sees your sin, he sees the perfect life of Jesus. I find that encouraging. So he's saying, listen, we share union with Christ and the encouragement that comes from that. 
we, we also share comfort from his love. That, that we have been eternally loved by God the Father. That we are safe in his love. We are secure in his love. We are fully and completely and eternally loved by God. There is nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In the same way, God the Father fully and eternally loves his son, Jesus, and looks at him and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because of our union with Christ, God the Father looks at you and says, I love you eternally. You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And we find great comfort in the fact that no matter what else happens in this life, we are fully and completely loved by God the Father. He says, we share this encouragement. We share this love. And look at this. We share the Spirit. That word, participation in the Spirit. From the Greek word for fellowship. I would say the most important word in the book of Philippians. This idea that we have this common participation. What is it? Well, I've got the Spirit and you've got the Spirit. You say, how in the world can God get a bunch of people to get along? Well, one of the ways is this is because the same spirit that dwelt in Christ now dwells in me and dwells in you. That doesn't mean we're all walking in the spirit. We can quench the spirit. We can grieve the spirit. But the truth is, is the moment you got saved, you got sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. You don't have to wait till later to get it. At the moment you get saved, you get the spirit. And it doesn't matter where you came from or where your background was or who your family was. When you get saved, you get the spirit. When I get saved, I got the spirit. So we participate in the same spirit. Now, all of that leads to the last two things, that there is now, hopefully, affection and sympathy for one another. Like, I, I, have, I have a feeling for you. I, I, there's something that God is stirring in my heart. I mean, I can say this to you. I, I, I love you. I'm not saying that in a trite way. I'm saying that God has supernaturally given me a love for you. I can say to you, and Lord willing, I will say to you every week, I love you, and I love being your pastor. I do, and God has given that to me. There is affection that has been given to me because you're God's people, and we share in these things. And that leads to sympathy, to empathy with one another. I feel for you, and I'm concerned for you. When you weep, I want to weep, and when you rejoice, I want to rejoice. So do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul's saying, listen, I know we have a tendency to focus on all of the things we don't have in common. But can we just stop and say, listen, we, we, we have the same spirit and the same union with Christ and the same encouragement and the same love. And that develops in us a love and a desire for one another. So listen, since we have all of those magnificent things in common, can't we find a way to... Be unified for the gospel. So he's saying, listen, we share the same gospel blessings. But then in verse 2, he's going to continue to say this as he's building his case. We share the same gospel blessings. Therefore, we must strive for the same gospel focus. Write that down. We must strive for the same gospel focus. So you're going to see how he's building here. We're united in our gospel blessings. You have the Spirit, I've got the Spirit. You've got Christ, I've got Christ. And man, God has unified us here. Now because of that, since we have those things, we have to then be striving for the same gospel focus. Look at verse two. Complete my joy. 
Paul says this, he says, I'm appealing to you based on what you have in common. I'm also appealing to you on the fact that I think you love me, so if you want to increase my joy, get along. Any pastor would say that. If you love me, then please, let's be together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, listen, if you, if you want to complete my joy, then what? Well, have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see, here's what's so great about the word of God. Listen, if you just have verse two without verse one, then verse two seems like an impossible command. Think about this. How can we have the same mind and one mind and the same love? Because you didn't learn love the way that I learned love. You grew up in a different family than I grew up, and we've all got our love baggage, and your mind is not the same as my mind, and my mind's not the same as your mind, and listen, you've got different views than I've got on all kinds of different things. How in the world is it possible for all of us to have one mind? Well, because verse one is true. Because I got the same spirit you've got. And I've been unified with the same Christ you've been unified with. And we share all of these things together. So he says, listen, we share these gospel blessings. Therefore, based upon that, strive for this gospel focus. He says, have the same mind. What does that mean? Well, we'll be like-minded. Have the same ambitions, the same concerns, the same desires and goals. Be like-minded. Have the same love. The same love, verse 1, that binds you together is the same love that should unite you. Be in full accord. That means to be in complete harmony with one another. You, you, you get this word picture of, of instruments playing, and you don't have to be a good musician to know when something's off. When everything's going one direction and something else is going in another direction, this kind of word picture here is that we're in full harmony. What does it mean? It means that together, the music that is being displayed from our church is the beautiful sound of Christ-exalting unity. Why? Because we're in harmony with one another. We, 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 want, we want the same things. We're going in the same direction. That's chapter 1, verse 27. Be together. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. So th th this goal is this harmony that we have together. That we're, man, we're working together. We're figuring this out. And we're all on the same page. But then he says the most amazing thing. Look at it carefully. He says, I want you to be of one mind. So he already said, be of the same mind. But it seems that he almost takes it a little further by saying, I want you to be of one mind. So not just the same, but all of you to have one mind. Now, that seems quite impossible, doesn't it? But it's exactly the goal for the church that we would have one mind. It's not just that we're getting along. This little phrase right here really shows us the depth of what he's talking about and really shows us the way in which this works. Because what is the one mind we are to have? Well, look at verse 5. It's for next week, but we're going to peek ahead. Have this mind. So what is the one mind? Well, it's this mind, verse 5. Among yourselves, here it is, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind that each one of us is to have is the mind of Jesus Christ. 
So he's saying we get the same gospel blessings. We have all been brought into the same family. Therefore, we should be striving for the same gospel focus. Well, well, how does that work? It's when I am seeking to think like Christ, to have the mind of Christ, and you're seeking to have the mind of Christ. And all of a sudden, listen, when all you want is to be like Jesus and all I want is to be like Jesus and I'm saying no to sin and yes to righteousness and I'm in this word and I'm being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and God's speaking to me, you know what happens when you do that and I do that? All of a sudden, supernaturally, we've got the same mind and it's the mind of Jesus. Now, if you're doing all that and I'm not doing that, it's impossible for us to have the, the same mind. If you're really striving for righteousness and you're in the word and I'm not, well, we can't have one mind. This is why I'm going to say to you often, your sin or your neglect of your spiritual life is not just your problem, it's my problem, it's our problem. Because if the goal is to be united in mind and mission, the only way that's possible is if you're walking with Jesus and I'm walking with Jesus and God is doing this work in us. And here's what's crazy. At the same time, God is doing this very unique work in you. And sanctification works this way. The way God works in you is different than he works in anybody else because you're different. God has a unique growth path for every one of you. As he's growing you and as he's growing me and he's doing all these distinct things, you know what's happening? We're actually becoming more alike. We're, we're getting the same mind. So Paul says, listen, you have all these things in common. Therefore, what needs to be happening is as you are growing in Christ's likeness, you now have not just the same gospel blessings, you have the same gospel focus. You're focusing on the same thing. I mean, how often does it happen where you say, listen, this is on my heart. And you say, well, that was on my heart too. And somebody else says, well, that was on my heart too. Why? Because we, we're getting the same mind. So Paul says, verse 1, you share these gospel blessings. Now you need to be striving for the same gospel focus. And the way in which that works is the third point here, that we must then display the same gospel humility. So verse 1, we share the same gospel blessings. This is the foundation. We must then strive for the same gospel focus, all of us pursuing Christ, going after Christ. And then the final part of the argument is this, write this down, we must display the same gospel humility. So, okay, so we know that we have all these things in common. We um, are seeking in our own personal life because up till now this has been fairly personal. You're seeking Jesus, I'm seeking Jesus, we're getting the same mind, but, but here's where it gets a little bit more difficult but yet still the only way that we become a healthy family displaying the glory of God headed in the right direction is if we are displaying the same gospel humility. So verse 3 works it out practically. I wish it didn't. I mean, part of me just wishes this was all kind of just out there. You walk with Jesus, I walk with Jesus, that's great. But remember, God uses people to grow us. So here's what he says. So, so do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. He's going to go on and say, and your model for this is Jesus Christ. And we'll see that next week. But right here, he very simply says, the way in which we are moving forward in unity, by the way, 
This is true for your marriage, for the church, for any relationship. The way you move forward to greater unity is a greater focus on the selfless humility of Christ. When we talk about this one mind of Jesus, it's not just the mind of wanting things Jesus wants and loving things Jesus loves. It's the mind of selfless humility of Jesus. So he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. What is that? Well, selfish ambition means you're driven by your desires and your wants. This comes up in chapter one when Paul says that there's these guys out there, they're preaching. They're preaching the right gospel, but they have wrong ambitions. They're preaching for selfish gain. So the selfish ambition is, is your own desires, your own wants, getting your own way. And here's what Paul says. You should do nothing from selfish ambition. Now, I would love if it was a little more vague than that. It's very definitive that the goal is to do, ab- think about this, <laughs> to do absolutely nothing in your life, nothing that is driven by a love for self or desire to get your own way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Well, conceit is pride. It's arrogance. It's viewing myself in a way that is not true, that I deserve more, that I should receive more, that I should be being served and that my preferences should be being met and, and that what I think matters more than what someone else thinks. And so that's conceit. It's arrogance. It's thinking highly of myself and what I deserve. It's thinking that my needs are more important than your needs. And what he says is this, that the goal, because this is the way Jesus lived and we want to be like Jesus, is to not have any part of us, nothing in us, that is constantly seeking our own want and our own desires at all. But instead, we're counting others more significant than ourselves. So there's this desire to allow there to be nothing that is coming out of my life that is driven by selfish ambition, but the opposite is this, is that I am then counting everyone else more significant than myself. That is an attitude of selfless humility. Selfless meaning this is not about me, it's about what you want, and it's humility because it says the reason I'm doing this is because I actually believe that what you want is more important than what I want. I really want to put your needs and your desires, and your wants above my own. What Paul is saying, listen, instead of fighting each other, you know what you should be fighting? You should be fighting your own self. That it is our self that is constantly rising up. It is me, it is me, it is me, it is my desires, it is my wants, it is my needs. Paul is saying, listen, if you want to fight something, instead of fighting each other, fight yourself. I mean, wouldn't you say that, that that this is the cause of most relational conflict? Self? Like, if there's a problem in my marriage, it's most often me. And and if it's not fully me, my, my response to the conflict needs to be, either way, less of me and more serving. It's eerily quiet in here. But I think... This is hard, isn't it? Like, but can't you see how relationships will begin to transition if in the morning we woke up and we said, 
I want to be all about you today. And your spouse would go, excuse me? What did you say? And I would say the best thing to do is not announce it, right? Because it's, it's not going to go well if you announce it. You, you make expectations way too high, right? So you just do it. You just serve. And what Paul is saying is the attitude of every Christ-exalting relationship is selfless humility. It is serving one another. And the thing that makes this so complicated is that deep inside of us, Andrew Murray would say the root of every sin, every sin is pride and self. Deep inside of us, we want to be on the throne of our own life. We want to be the Lord of our life. We want, can we just be honest? We want to be served. We want to be served in relationships. We want to be served at church. Like, we're not begging to get people to have more of an attitude of wanting to be served at church. I wish you just wanted to be served more. We don't say that. What we say is we need more of you to serve. Why? Because deep inside of our DNA, as sinful human beings, we love ourselves, and we think everyone else should love us too. I mean, it's so deep inside of us that while I'm preparing this message, I'm thinking about all of you who need to hear it. I'm not kidding. Like, I'm preparing this. I'm thinking, oh, God, man, they need this. This is unbelievable. <laughs> and yet at that moment, I'm thinking, wait, wait a minute. Hold on. The whole point of this is for me to examine myself and just ask the simple question, am I existing to serve you? Like to give myself fully for you, to actually, this is what, to consider you more important than myself. Can you look down at verse 14 real quick? I, you say, well, how does this manifest itself in a church? I, I, we're going to get to this. We're going to do a whole sermon on this. I love this one. You've got five kids. This is your favorite verse. When you've got five kids and you're a pastor, this is your favorite verse. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You know, I, I think the way that you begin to discern the lack of selfless humility is by the rise of grumbling and disputing. Because grumbling and disputing comes from self. And so Paul is calling them out, not to humiliate them, but to call them to greater holiness, that the church might be the church that is being used to advance the kingdom of Christ and to exalt the name of Christ. And humility is, is not... Thinking less of yourself. It's not moping around, thinking you're no good. It's simply thinking about yourself less. Just not thinking about yourself as much as you do. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He says if you were to meet a truly humble man, you wouldn't notice them by how down they seem to be on their self. You, you would notice them by a couple of things. How light and joyful they appear and by their genuine concern in what you're saying they just, they wouldn't enter into a conversation thinking about themselves. They would just be thinking about you. And it says in verse 4, let each of you, every single one of you, look not only to your own interest, but also the interest of others. This is a call to completely reprioritize your thinking 
where you're thinking consistently about what other people's needs, to paying more attention to their needs than your own. And just imagine all of us embracing this mind of Jesus of selfless humility and beginning to live this way. I'm telling you, a lost person walks into a church where the people are doing this, they will have never seen anything like this in their life, ever. They walk into your home and they see this. They, there is no place. You, you can go a lot of places and see a gathering like this of people who sing the same songs, maybe believe the same message. There is no other place but the church of Jesus Christ where you can see a group of people living like this. Selfless humility. Let me just, let me just tell you this. This, this is to be the culture of the church. And everything in me right now wants to think, well, and, and it would be that way if you'd stop saying that you want this. But it doesn't work that way. It works with me saying, hey, listen, how can I love you? And how can I serve you? And, and how can I exist for your spiritual progress? I, I want to serve you. I think of John 13 where Jesus says, Love each other as I have loved you. And he says it right after he washes their feet. That's what selfless humility looks like. And Jesus was trying to paint a picture. And the reason this matters is because it's exactly what Christ did for us. Can we just acknowledge that relationships are hard, church is hard, family is hard. And the reason is because every one of us are sinful and dysfunctional and none of us are that easy to love. But it's in those relationships, listen, that we learn to be like Jesus. It's in those relationships in which we learn how to serve and how to put others ahead of ourselves. Yet still, we want to run from those relationships. We just want to do anything we can to get away from those relationships when God, as messy as it is, listen, is calling you into more relationship. Get into relationships, get to know people, and use that as a means of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You don't run from these. You commit to a greater degree. We all have dysfunction. But it is in that dysfunction we learn how to love. So just a few questions as we close this morning. I want to ask you, are you maybe in a desire to self-protect or whatever else it may be, running from relationships, or are you willing to give yourself to relationships even knowing you might be hurt? Jesus did, and he did that for you. And I think one of the things God wants to do in us this morning is he wants us to run towards relationships. Some of you have really put a guard up and God wants to take that guard down and say, listen, get involved and get involved not because of what it can do for you, but just get involved for what you can do for others. Think about relationships differently. How can you serve others? How can you be engaged with others? Are there relationships in which you're longing to see greater unity in the home, in the church? Is God calling you to greater selfless humility? And let me just ask you one final question. Are you willing to pray that God would develop humility in you? Can I tell you a pet peeve of mine? I hate when people say, don't pray for humility because God might give it to you. That's a really dumb thing to say. Why would I be afraid to pray something that God wants for me? And why would I be afraid to God to, to 
in a perfectly wise way, lead me in a path in which that's being developed. Could it mean that you have to die to self? It will mean that. Could it mean a lot of sacrifice? It will mean that. But at the end of it all, if God answers that prayer and he leads us into greater humility, why would we not rejoice in that? So can I ask you this morning to pray a prayer you might have been afraid to pray ever before? God, I want to be humble. I I want to live a life of selfless humility, putting others' needs above my own. Would you, by your grace and because of your tender kindness, develop this in me? Because as hard as it is, it is a beautiful thing to see in someone and uniquely glorifies Christ. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.